John chapter 5 today, John chapter 5, verse number 24, if you have a copy of the Bible, we'll look there in just a moment, John chapter 5, verse 25. Okay, I don't know if you are a fan of the Old West movie, but my dad, I think, has watched every Old West movie uh, known to man. I mean, he's seen them all, and so by, uh, by proxy, um, you know, we have watched a lot of Old West movies because my dad watched a lot of them. And in the Old West movie, there is always a component or there is something that's often a part when you think about the sheriff and, and what he's doing. If you're ever in the sheriff's office or you're walking by on, you know, those old wood plank roads, there is something that's attached or affixed to the wall, and it's usually some kind of poster. And on the top, of course, it says wanted. And then it has, you know, somebody's image, their visage there. And then there are three words that are almost always attached to the wanted poster. And those three words are wanted. And then what are the three words? dead or alive. Okay, so we did a little bit of uh, digging and we found some Old West posters. The first one is called the Wild Bunch, and this is a group that would have included Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And of course, there's always a reward as well because, you know, these guys have done terrible deeds and so they are wanted dead or alive. And then there's another one, Jesse James, of course, he was a famous outlaw. And so he was wanted dead or alive. And, um, you know, then you, you've got a little bit higher reward. I mean, $5,000, Jesse James wanted dead or alive. And then another very famous, although quite young criminal, but has, you know, established some renown. And that was Billy the Kid. And so Billy the Kid, when he, when he was really well known, the guy was 19 years old, but he was certainly wanted far and wide and known as a terrible criminal. And so wanted, dead or alive, Billy the Kid. And then I don't know if you've done any research on your own family history. You know, sometimes you start to look at, you know, we look at these, these terrible criminals, but sometimes if you just do a little, you know, today a lot of people are doing genealogical research and finding out some things. And, and again, just through our digging, we found another uh, terrible criminal wanted from days gone by. And let's take a look at that one. And this one was very serious. <laughs> and uh, this one, Zany Zach. And uh, the thing that I found interesting and so devious was that chaplain of crime. I mean, seriously, who does that? So anyways, I, I don't know if you have some history. Let's yeah, move that off the screen. I don't know if you have some history yourself, but I do know that, that all of us have some kind of past. And of course, some more than others, but all of us have, all of us have some kind of history, some kind of past. And, and I guess the thing that we're trying to highlight from from showing these posters is there is a really important word that's used every time a criminal is wanted dead or alive. And of course it's serious and I'm not trying to make too much light of the fact that these were serious criminals, but you never said wanted, and, and I'm just trying to prove a point with this or make a point, you never said wanted dead and alive because that's an impossibility. 
So when someone is wanted in the Old West movie and the sheriff comes into town and, and he's going to do his job, they're wanted dead or not dead and. We have lots of examples in life of this, of course. You are either born or you're not. You're either a cat or a dog. It's round or it's square. It's black or it's white. It's up or it's down. It's dead or it's alive. The title of our message is pretty simple and you're already three steps ahead. The title of our message today is simply dead or alive. Now I'm going to submit to you that this is something that every person in this building ought consider. And if you're watching today, this is something that any person hearing this message should consider. These specific words, dead or alive. Today, of course, we have several guests and we are honoring our first responders. On a regular basis, you all deal with what we refer to as life or death situations. But we don't normally refer to it as life and death situations. We understand that there are some extremes, polar opposites, those things that can't be both and, it's either or, dead or alive. In the passage that we're about to look at, Jesus is dealing with the greatest life and death situation that mankind can face. He's not going to present a both this and that proposition. It is one or the other kind of reality. The first thing we're going to consider today, and I am asking every person to consider, how does this apply to me? The first thing we're going to consider today is what we'll refer to as the problem of death. The problem of death. And that is a real problem that all of us are keenly aware of. In fact, in a world today where we're constantly confronted with images and media from around the world, death has in many ways become more personal. It's become a little bit more close. We see it and then the realities of the same. The problem of death is what Jesus is addressing because it is a problem that all of us face. In, in our passage of scripture, John chapter 5, verse number 24, notice what Jesus says. He's saying, this is the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Passed from so one place was your station, one place was your situation, but you have passed from one unto another. These are not both mutually compatible. The Greek word that's used here is an interesting one because it helps us understand the word more accurately. The word death has always meant one thing, and that is separation. The word death has always meant one thing, and that is separation. The Greek word used here is thanatos, thanatos. Now, certainly it does mean the cessation of one life, physical life, but it doesn't stop there. In fact, the word means something more than cessation. More than cessation, it means separation. 
separation is passed from, you could say it this way, separation to no separation. Every person on the face of the earth has to pass from one situation into the next, or at least every person should. So Thanatos, separation. The idea that Jesus is trying to communicate in ways that he can't overestimate. Verily, verily, I'm telling you the truth. There's no question regarding this. He's saying in absolute terms, you have to pass from separation to no separation. Of course, when a person dies, we do understand there is the cessation of bodily life, but not the cessation of you. This past Friday, I was in Colorado and I was attending my parents' 60th wedding anniversary. Yes, I was. And so I'm attending their anniversary and while I'm there, I'm getting ready to fly home back here to Pensacola on Friday afternoon, Friday evening. And so I went for my my customary morning walk. And so I'm walking and, and just enjoying a beautiful Colorado cool morning. In fact, when I woke up on Friday morning, it was in the mid-50s and uh, just a beautiful, clear morning. So I'm going for my walk and, and I'm walking around kind of the backside of my parents' neighborhood and there's an old cemetery back there. So I just walked through the cemetery. Um, there's lots of people there and I'm not being silly about this, but for sake of illustration, there's lots of people there, but I'm the only one living there. So I'm walking in the midst of a lot of people who have experienced what we refer to as physical bodily death. They've died. And and so it's very quiet. It's very peaceful. It's a beautiful morning. It's early in the morning. And I'm just walking through as part of my walk in the neighborhood. I'm walking through this old cemetery. And grave markers, tombstones, they do tell a story. They don't tell the whole story. But they tell a lot of a story. And the more you read them, the more intrigued you are, and, and sometimes you're, you're, you're pausing and saying, oh, that's sad. And sometimes you're saying, oh, I wonder what. And sometimes you have some little indication that this person lived a long time, and maybe you know areas and places or ways that they served. <clears throat> you get a little sense, but not the whole story. While I'm walking, one marker just stood out to me. In fact, it, it stood out to me in some rather profound ways. It was not a large or ornate marker in any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it was probably, um, I don't know, maybe a foot and a half wide by um, a foot, maybe two feet tall. And as I'm looking at this, I noticed the number of names. And there was a year and a, a closing year. And there were six people who were marked on this one individual marker. And as I started to look through this, I saw that Adam was born in 1887. He died at the age of 32. Lizzie was born in 1891. She died at the age of 27. Margaret was born in 1911. She died at the age of eight. Florence, 1914, died at six. Juanita was born in 1916. She died at the age of three. And little Wesley was born in 1918, and he died at the age of one. The marker was so um, profound to me that I took a picture, and the thing that stood out to me was that every person's name that was mentioned there died the same year, of which I concluded they, they all died together, 1919. 
And then when I, when I got home, I just started to think, what happened to this family? Why the loss of life for a whole family? And I did just a little bit of simple research, and, and I did learn that this family um, did all die, of course, on the same day, and it was a tragic situation. A farmhand came in on an early Sunday morning and took the life of every person that was part of that family. The story made national news. It happened in Johnstown, Colorado, and it was something that still today is part of some of the the legal, insightful uh, um, deliberations of how should the case have been handled. The man who was convicted of the crime was a man, again, who just worked as a farmhand, Alex Miller, and he was convicted by a jury in less than 15 minutes. And while he didn't receive a, 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 the, the death penalty, he did receive a life sentence. He was um, eligible for parole very late in life, but no family member would take him in. So they kept him in prison, and he was buried at the penitentiary. Six people's lives came and, and left, and there's a little marker there that says that they lived and they died, and then you and I would ask the question, well, then what? Then what? We have this problem of death. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment appointed unto man once to die, after this, judgment. So we all have an appointment. That is the problem of death. Did you notice the words after this? After this, it's appointed unto man once to die, but then what? After this, the pattern of death or separation is communicated all throughout the Bible. Jesus communicated this with absolute clarity to a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Let's walk through this passage of Scripture and notice what Jesus is saying about the two choices of separation or no separation. In verse number 15, it begins, it says, that, <clears throat> that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, that that is no separation, but have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should, here's our words again, not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten son of God. It's hard to get much clearer than that. And this is just one passage of many. In fact, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, Jesus said it this way. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Again, you get this idea of there is a problem of separation or no separation. It's the problem that all of us face regarding the problem of death. When God first created... I know sometimes we say, well, that's just a nice story. But no, there was a real couple whose names were Adam and Eve. They lived in a real garden. And because sin does what it always does, it produced what we refer to as death or separation. So what did Adam and Eve have to do? Well, they had to leave a real garden 
they were separated from that, but more importantly, they now became separated from God. They experienced what we call spiritual death. It's the way you and I are born, separated from God. We are born, if you will, spiritually dead, spiritually separated. So you see, we not only have this problem of death, let's also look at what we'll refer to as the pervasiveness of death. The pervasiveness of death. Romans chapter 5, we'll put the passage available for you on the screen, but notice what it says. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death, separation by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Well, this is the pervasiveness of death. Years ago, this was back in 1993, a man that was rather famous in the tennis world of the day was named Arthur Ashe, died of a terrible sickness that we refer to today commonly as AIDS. Arthur Ashe contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion and he never overcame the disease. So Arthur Ashe died from what we would refer to as tainted blood. Do you know, in one way, you and I could say that we were all born into the world with, in a sense, tainted blood. We were born into a broken world and we inherited what all men have been passed down to receive. And that is the nature of our fathers which is sin, which is separation. The pervasiveness of death. Remember, God doesn't grade on a curve. We're all born sinners, so we all receive, in a sense, the same result. Death passed upon all because all of us had what our father had, and that is separation from God. We oftentimes might think something like this. We think, well, I'm not as bad as the next person. I'm not as bad as someone else. But God measures us only against his holiness, not against another's sinfulness. So the question is not, are you good enough? The question really is, are you as good as God? The Bible records it this way. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible simply states, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. That is, we don't measure up to God's standard of perfection. We might be better or worse than the next person, but quite frankly, that doesn't matter. The one we compare ourselves to is the perfect standard of God. At times, we resist the idea that we actually deserve judgment, what the Bible refers to as a real place called hell, instead of heaven. But the truth of the matter is, you and I would have to be perfect to attain heaven. Otherwise, I mean, it would no longer be heaven. So let me ask it this way. Um, how many of you drove to church today? You drove, now I know a lot of you walked to church, but how many of you drove to church? Raise your hands. Okay, all over the, leave your hands up if you drove to church. Okay, um, leave your hands up if you locked your car. Wow, a lot of you locked your cars. Okay, even the police officers lock their cars, okay. So why did you lock your car? You're at church. Say, because I know these people, okay. <laughs> I mean, why, why do we lock our cars if we're at church and we're like, oh, no, I'm, I'm in the midst of, I call them brother and sister. I know my brother, okay. 
We, we lock our cars because we have a common understanding of the brokenness of the world we live in. So we understand that there is both good and evil, right and wrong. Does anyone disagree with the fact that the world is oftentimes presented as a mess, something that's broken? And then we ask, why is it that way? Well, if I asked, and I'm not, but if I asked how many of you have ever found yourself to be a mess, all of us come into the world broken in need of someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Unless you think, well, I wouldn't steal someone's car, I wouldn't break into a church. I wouldn't do some terrible thing. I think I'm better than most. I, I guess that's fine. But again, against what are you measuring yourself? Let's ask it this way. How many of you would say that you measure yourself perfectly against God's standard presented to mankind in what we refer to as the Ten Commandments? How many of you have concluded, like, I've kept all of those and I do them with perfection because that is the standard by which all of us are judged, perfection. I mean, if you just think about a few of them, thou shalt not kill. You say, hey, I haven't done that. But Jesus helps us understand even the heart matter of what we call thou shalt not kill. He says, listen, if you've had hatred in your heart toward another, it's as if you have committed the sin. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You say, well, I'm not an adulterer. Again, Jesus said that if you've looked on another with lust in your heart, that you're guilty of the same. Thou shalt not steal. Well, I'm not stolen. I haven't stolen much. I mean, it was so little. It was so insignificant. Or I stole a little time from my employer. But who doesn't do that? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not lie. Sometimes we say, well, bear false witness. I, I don't lie bear false witness. Did you know you can lie without even opening your mouth? I mean, what kind of a child never, never just answered with an expression as opposed to a word? Did you do that? Mm, no. And then we kind of point to the person. Yeah, we point to the person that may be guilty of the same. When you start to think about the standard by which we're measured, thou shalt not covet, have you ever looked at what another person had, even their personality, their abilities, their looks, their talents, their stuff? If we truly measure ourselves, we would find that we are oftentimes murdering, adultering, thieving, lying, coveting people. And how does that stack up against God's standard of perfection? This was some time ago, I told a story about being in L.A. speaking for an event there. And I was walking in the neighborhood, and while I'm walking in the neighborhood, there are oranges just hanging over from people's yards. And I had this overwhelming urge to take one. Uh, recently, this last summer, I was back in that same area at the same church, and I'm walking, and once again, these oranges are just hanging over ripe for the picking and I wanted one. They're not mine. They belong to someone else. But it doesn't really matter at that moment because I wanted one. Do you know what I did? It's none of your business. What I, <laughs> what I, what I did was I, I kept walking. But I'm thinking, why is it that I have such a, a compulsion? And I'm not even like, I just, I just love oranges. 
In fact, the, the last time I told that story, we had some missionaries that were watching the service through live stream, and their little girls, when they came to visit, they went to the, they went to the grocery store and bought me oranges and presented them and said, here, pastor, now you don't have to steal any. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that you and I have a nature that desires those things that nothing in our head can simply erase? We have a nature that is inclined to sin. It is the pervasiveness of sin. So all of us are born separated from God. We demonstrate the fact that we are separated from him by our very nature. And since we can't remedy this problem ourselves... We need a remedy that is presented for us. That is the prescription for death. We do understand the problem. We understand the pervasiveness. You might conclude by saying, okay, pastor, help us understand the prescription for separation, the prescription for death. In Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, the Bible says this, but God commendeth. God presented, God demonstrated, he fully made known, but God commendeth. I'm recommending this to you, God saying, but God commendeth his love toward us in that, or here's how. While we were yet sinners, remember sin brings death. Death is equal to separation. While you were separated as a sinner, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we could say it this way. Jesus Christ took our separation. Remember, we're born spiritually separated from God. It's the natural result of our sin. But Jesus died, separated himself on our behalf. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I mean, what kind of a person are you? Same kind of person as am I, a sinner. Okay, so you understand my, my state is I'm a sinner. Jesus came to do what? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners people just like you, people just like me. The Bible further says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know what the word repentance means? The word repentance means to change your mind. Change your mind. Like, okay, I'm thinking I'm going to be fine this way. I'm going to be good enough. Wait, my, my good enough is not enough. My best is insufficient. My good works are woefully unsatisfying to the perfect standard of God. So repentance. Repentance simply means to change your mind. I'm not enough. There is one who is sufficient. His name is Jesus. He's the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God. What an appropriate expression. The lamb of God. For years, it was pictured what Jesus would accomplish. For years, it was pictured when the spotless lamb, its blood would be shed. It would be offered as a sacrifice. It was just a picture. 
It was just preparing us for the spotless lamb. You've heard this many times, I'm sure, but John the Baptist, who came and prepared the way for Jesus, John the Baptist one time saw Jesus coming and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Here's the one we've been looking for. So Jesus came to do what? He came to save sinners. He's not willing that all sh any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants you and I to change our mind. I'm enough. I'm not enough. I change my mind. Jesus Christ is singularly sufficient for me to have my sin debt resolved. Since God is not willing that any should perish, but he cannot compromise his justice, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to pay in full the debt that you and I have incurred. When Jesus took our death, it literally means he took our separation so that there's now no more separation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you remember the statements that Jesus made on the cross? The statement that Jesus made that just continues to ring with some weight that we can't fully wrap our mind around. Jesus is hanging on the cross Jesus is the one who introduces a title to God that you and I previously had never dared use. He said, when you pray, pray after this manner, our Father, which art in heaven. Part of the family? I can refer to God as Father? And Jesus, of course, did. So he's helping us understand there's a new relationship that's available for you. But when Jesus is dying on the cross... The words that he utters and, and, and we stand back with some disbelief. Did, did he just say this? Jesus had said previously, I and my father are one. Jesus said, he that hath seen me hath seen the father. We're the same. And yet now as Jesus hangs on the cross, he says, not my father, my God. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forsaken. Separation. And now God is rent from God. Why? Because of my sin. Because of my debt. Christ Jesus came to save sinners and Christ became sin for me. He who knew no sin took upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. What did Jesus do? He provides for us what we've been referring to as this prescription for sin. The Bible now says in Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? <clears throat> Do you understand the, the, the magnitude of those words? There is therefore now no condemnation to them, those which are in Christ Jesus, that I can stand, even though I, I know I still sin, but now I have passed, because of my confidence in Jesus, 
I pass from death, separation, to life, no separation. I stand now covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's as if when God looks at me, he sees his son. A son, a son which can come with boldness into the presence of the Father, as can you, as can I. When we find Jesus Christ as the prescription for our sin. You say, well, what about physical death? Don't we still face physical death? True, but that's just the shadow. That's not the reality. In fact, to close your eyes for a believer in this world means to open them in the next. One of the wonderful commentators of days gone by is a man by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse. Barnhouse lost his wife when she was young and he still had young children in the home. Barnhouse wrote the following. I was driving with my children to my wife's funeral where I was to preach the sermon. As we came into one small town, there was in front of us a truck that came to a stop before a red light. It was the biggest truck I've ever seen in my life and the sun was shining on it at just the right angle that took its shadow and spread it across the snow on the field beside it. As the shadow covered that field, I said, look children, look at that truck and look at its shadow. If you had to be run over, which would you rather be run over by? Would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? My youngest child said, the shadow couldn't hurt anybody. To which he responded, that's right. And death is a truck, but the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over the Lord Jesus. Only the shadow has gone over your mother. And we say today, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Make no doubt about it. Today, every person here, every person watching, is in one of two situations, death or life. And if you are not at the point of life, that means you are at the place still today of separation. Jesus said it this way in John eleven twenty five. 25. He was speaking to a lady that needed to hear these words. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, as if he were dead, yet shall he live. Today, Jesus Christ can become your salvation. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So how do I make this transfer from death, separation, to life? No separation. The Bible says it in very direct terms. It says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved rescued. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no opportunity to come to God. He said it in very plain terms in John 10, 9, I am the door. By me, 
If any man enter in, he shall be saved. The question today for all within the sound of my voice is simply this. Dead or alive? Separated or never for the rest of all eternity? Never will you ever be separated. It's a weighty question and a question that all must answer. My prayer for you is that you have in fact passed from death unto life for all eternity.